Hey, this is Ed Luther, pastor of City Church in Australia. I hope that today's podcast really inspires you. Thank you so much for listening. Well, this morning is number two in a series that we're doing on uh, culture and values that create culture. Culture is the environment that we want to create in a space. And I'm talking about in the space of a worship service here at City Church on a Sunday and going out of here, um, the culture that we want to create, the environment, if you will, uh, isn't by accident. It's by design, not by default. And what creates culture are values. A value simply is what you hold as valuable. What do you see as valuable? Um, so if you see something as value, valuable or someone, you're going to treat that person or whatever that, that thing, if it's your car or whatever it is, or, or a, a value such as integrity, you know, being honest, telling the truth. Uh, whatever you're valuing is what you're placing value in. It's, it's what you see as valuable. And we have on our uh, wall leading into uh, the auditorium out in the foyer, we've got nine of our value statements, values, the things that we hold as valuable. Why? So that we can create a culture at City Church. And that culture, I believe, is worth creating and certainly worth uh, holding, holding these values up. So this is number two in, in the series. And last week we looked at, we, we always have room for more. It's not us for no more. We're not an exclusive, like a club or a cult or something where nobody else can come in. It's like, no, there's a big world out there. There's plenty of room at the table. And so come on in. And I, I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, subscribe, City Church, Sunshine Coast, uh, and you'll get all past messages. You can kind of catch up on, on that. Uh, this value today, number two in our, in our series on values, that, that create culture uh, is our value statement, we see what God sees. And I've called this sermon, this message, seeing what God sees. God is light. In him there is no darkness. Genesis starts off that way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, the earth w was without void. And then God spoke into that, that chaos. He spoke into that darkness and he appeared on the scene. And then he makes one of the most profound statements in Genesis, let there be light. The entrance of God's word brings light. Light is illumination. Light creates something that doesn't exist if there was no light. And that something is sight. If you think about no light, no sight. Well, what's the purpose of, of sight without light? There isn't any. Uh, there could be light. But if you don't have sight for you, there is no light. And flip that on its head, uh, same thing. If there's no sight, there's, there's no reason for light. If there's no light, there's no reason for sight. God created both. He created light to illuminate the world. When he, when he stepped into the world, it, it already existed. He brought that into creation so that you could see something. And he created sight. He created the ability for all of us to see, not just with our physical eyes to detect light waves, or light is kind of a particle in a wave, but he, he created light so that you could see something. And that something that you see 
is amazing, and it's something that God wants us to see what he sees. I've been to some beautiful places on the planet. I'm sure that you have as well. One of my favorite all times is the South Island of New Zealand. I, I've been around seeing mountains and lakes and beautiful landscape, but I don't think there's anything in my estimation that compares with the South Island of New Zealand. Um, it's just an amazing place. Gail and I, we um, hired a caravan and we went around the South Island. We spent a few weeks doing that. And you could stop off the road free camp. You could just pull over uh, and just camp. And I, I love that because we'd, we'd pick a spot. It's like, this is so beautiful. Look at this. There's, there's a lake. There's no wind. You can see the reflection of these amazing mountains in the lake. The beautiful, pristine sky is blue, and then it turns into a starry night. And looking at that, it's like, does life get any better than this? But if there was no light, you wouldn't see those mountains or that lake or any reflection or, or even the stars would, 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 would disappear. It, it all hinges on light. And I like the fact that God gave us physical senses like, like sound and, 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 of course, smell and touch. But you're not probably going to go touching all the mountains. They're beautiful because you can see them, and they're only visible because of light. God wants us to see something because God sees something. And that something that we see that, that God wants us to see will, will become a value that, that creates a culture. And that's where we're going to camp this morning, where I want to go this morning, is what are, what are the, what's that value that God sees something? What is the value that he, he wants us to see what he sees? Now, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you've seen something, but you're all by yourself, and you go, man, like, that's amazing, but there's nobody to share it with. And so God uh, didn't, didn't invent this, but people invented something called the camera. And why did they invent the camera? They invented the camera so that other people could see what they see. Scripture is a camera. It's pictures. It's God's picture book. Scripture, the Bible, is, is God's picture album, if you will, of his family from the beginning. Part of it is a history and Part of it is uh, biographies of sorts of different people that live. It's, it's, it's God's picture album of his dealings with humanity because he sees something and he wants us to see it. I was flying on the way to the Philippines and we were flying over uh, New Guinea and uh, the sun was setting and it was the most beautiful sight. And this is what I saw if you want to have a look at the screen looking out the window of the plane, and I took uh, quite a few photos, and it just seemed to, as the sun's going down, and the plane's, of course, going forward at about 500 uh, kilometers or miles, I don't know what it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's flying fast, and so that, that's, that, that beautiful sunset from an altitude of 30,000 feet was just spectacular, but I didn't know anybody on the plane, and I'm sitting next to the window, and I'm thinking, I just wanted to say to everybody on the plane, guys, look out the window, but people are on their, you know, they're, they're looking at movies, and they got the lights out, and they're sleeping, and, and hardly anybody's seeing what I saw as I looked out the window, and then the plane moved on a little bit, and then this came up, 
Uh, this is the next photo that I took. Now, I don't know if that looks like to you what it looked like to me. About there you go, man. I thought, this is, I've got a vivid imagination, but, but I'm looking out the window and I'm going, that's about, and it looks like the wake of the boat and the reflection of water and everything else, kind of a combination between a speedboat and a, a yacht, I guess. Uh, does anybody else see the boat or not? Okay, so it's not just Ren and I, in our imagination. <laughs> and, and I'm looking out the window and I'm thinking, the boat's going to disappear because the plane's moving fast and the sun is setting. But right now, there's a boat outside the cabin of, of this airplane. And, and I saw that. I'm just like, got to get some pictures. It even looked more like a boat, but it took me that long to get, you know, get my camera out and start taking pictures of it. And, uh, and I thought, isn't that amazing? I wanted everyone to see what I see. God wants us to see what he sees. The big question is, what does God see? And then an add-on question to that is, do you see what God sees? Because God wants to show you something. God wants all of us to see something. So what is that? In our value statement, we see what God sees uh, is where we're headed. I want to go to a parable. It's in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew um, was a tax collector. He was one of the disciples of Jesus. And, and Jesus saw something in this young man as a tax collector. And he said, come and follow me. And, and Matthew did. He left his job. He left his vocation. And, and he, um, he picked, packed up everything and he followed Jesus. And God saw something in him. He sees something in all of us. In Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus gives us a parable. Now, I've talked a little bit about what a parable is, but I want to I just give you a little bit more background on, on the word parable because it comes from two words. It's a combination of two words. One of them is Latin, which is parabola. I hope I pronounced that right if you're a mathematician. Uh, a, a parabola, P-A-R-A-B-O-L-A, -A -A, is Latin. It means a symmetrical open plane curve formed by the intersection of a cone and a plane, like just picture a plane like a piece of paper parallel to its side. So it intersects that, and so a parabola or a par parabola, however you pronounce it, uh, looks like a U. That's what it looks like, because it's a plane intersecting a cone. So what it is is something two-dimensional, like a plane or a piece of paper, intersecting something three-dimensional. Now, our existence here, for the most part, isn't four-dimensional. Our existence is in two or three dimensions. But God wants to show, share something with us here. Jesus has given this parable about something that's way off the charts. I don't know what dimension it's in, but it's called heaven or the kingdom of heaven. And so that we can understand here on earth what heaven is about, he gives us a parable. He gives us something that we can relate to here to explain something that's going down there. Uh, I, I don't know if you get that, but that's, 
that's something that uh, of an earthly dimension used to describe something heavenly. So he throws that alongside something earthly, throws it, para means parallel, uh, and bole means to throw. So he throws something that we can't understand alongside of something that we can't understand because it's in a whole other dimension. So that's what Matthew 25 uh, leading up to that, the 24th chapter, the, the disciples are asking questions. They're marveling at the temple. And he says, look, not one stone of this temple is going to be left upon another. Uh, Gail and I were in Jerusalem uh, a few years ago. There's not one stone that, that is left upon another. The whole thing was destroyed, just like he said in about 60 AD by the Romans. And so they're saying, what's, the, what's, what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And, you know, what, when are these things going to happen? And he says, well, nobody, not even the, uh, uh, the sun knows the day nor the hour that all this stuff's going to unfold. But then he, then he hits chapter 25 here. And I'm not going to look at this from an eschatology uh, level, in other words, as a, a teaching on the end times, but I want, uh, again, to address this value. Uh, we see what God sees, and God wants to show us something I believe is profound that will impact your life this morning. So Matthew 25, again, this is a parable. It's not literal. Verses 1 to 13, at that time, the kingdom of heaven, this is what he's trying to illustrate here, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom in Scripture is Jesus, and we're called his bride. So we're the prize. We're not literally uh, corporately a woman or a bride, but that's, that's how he loves us so much. We're the, the, his affection, the, the apple of his eye, and we're the love of his life. And uh, people, people, people are on the heart of God. At that time, heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. Now, the lamps back in those days were not electric. Uh, they had oil. They had to burn. They had a wick. They had to be trimmed. The, uh, the wick would burn, so they had to cut the, the charred portion off of that. Otherwise, it would just give off this terrible smoke and the stench. So they're constantly filling the lamp with oil, trimming the wick to keep the burn bit uh, fresh, get, getting rid of that. And the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars with their lamps. In other words, they had uh, the fuel to keep the light burning so they could see something. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Do you ever notice that this life in one way seems to go on forever, but then you look back and you go, man, that was quick. This thing doesn't go on forever. But for all of us, sometimes it seems like it goes on for so long, forever, so that we just take our time. We kind of watch life parade before us, and we're not, we're not conscious, like I said at the start, we're not in the now for a lot of it. We're living in the past with regrets and memories and all the rest of it, or we're somewhere in the future, mainly with worry uh, or trying to think and try to grapple with what's, what's coming up. But the wise ones took oil in their jars with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. 
at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. They got the, the lamps going. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This parable, when I was a new Christian, way back in the 70s, this terrified me. And um, it terrified me because fear, fear tended to be in vogue uh, back then to get people to come to church. And there were a lot of fear peddlers. And uh, they came out with movies like A Distant Thunder, A Thief in the Night, uh, a few others that some of you would definitely know what I'm talking about, where you're just thinking, man, like, what if he comes back and I'm sleeping? What if, what if I don't recognize him? What if, what if I miss him? What, what if? And I remember um, preachers at the time, they would preach these messages that were so full of fear that seriously, Freddy Krueger would be terrified. Uh, it was awful. And all those people got scared and, and, and scared into church or whatever. And and probably never, never lasted because the fear would wear off. It's like, <laughs> it didn't happen like they said. The world was going to end, you know, back in 79 or 80. Somebody in our church back then, not this church, the church I was going to, got up and said that. Probably got six months at the very most before the Lord comes back because of what was happening in the Middle East. Well, lots happened since then. He didn't come back in six months from the end of 79. Uh, it didn't happen. And I think to live for fear, it's not where this is going. It's, it certainly uh, isn't the spirit of this church. It's not the culture that, that we uh, want to create here. It's not a, a, a culture of fear to keep people going to church or to get people in. I don't think that's what God wants us to see either as his children is just to be afraid of everything. And, but the question still, it still begs the question, if I'm seeing what God sees, then what does God see? And how do I know that I'm not going to miss him? In, um, firstly, in what he wants to show us and, and when he does return eventually. The answer to that question is profound. It's profound because if you don't want to miss him at the end, then don't miss him in the everyday. In other words, if you want to be with God in heaven for eternity, be with God in the now here on earth. If you want to see what God sees and you want to perceive God, then get close to God. Because notice his response to the foolish virgins, I, I didn't know you. Like that's a parable, again, like it's uh, paralleling a wedding feast. Like uh, you don't go to a wedding unless you're invited. If you're an invited guest, then there's a place for you. But 
you, you, you generally get an invite to the wedding because you either know the bride or the groom or the family or there's some connection there. And, and, and with God, his, the cry of God's heart, I want to know you. I want you to know me. That's, that's a, a level of friendship that God wants to have with us, with all of us. And so he invites us into his space. He invites us into his world, not just in, uh, in heaven, like one day we're going to go and be with him, but in the everyday God wants to get to know you. Now, when I heard that, that was good news. Uh, it was also a big puzzle because how, how do I get to know someone I can't see? Physically cannot see him. And if we see what God sees, we, we start to see that God is not uh, he's not asking us to look into the light because you go blind. He's, he's, he is light. You don't look into the sun. Uh, you don't look at, you know, solar eclipses without special glasses on or you, you look at a, a reflection or something. You look at, uh, you know, the image of it on a piece of paper. But, you know, he's not talking about that. He wants us to see what he sees mainly not in things but in people. God wants us to see something, but beyond that, that something is someone. And if we're walking with God in the everyday, we'll start, we, we can't miss him when it comes to the end of the age. I endeavored to start my day with, in my walk with him and have that fellowship and, and, and get the images that he gives me in my imagination, that he shows me things about my day that are profound. He helps me work things out that I couldn't work out on my own. And if you don't miss him in the everyday, then you won't miss him at the end of the age. I think that Jesus is the first undercover boss. Have you ever watched that show, Undercover Boss? I don't watch a lot of television, but I like Shark Tank. And right before Shark Tank comes on at 6.30, uh, there's undercover boss. So usually we flick over and I catch just the end of undercover boss. Now, if you've never watched that, uh, they, they find uh, owners of companies, people that usually have, you know, in the millions of dollars, and they, they dress up in disguise and they go into work. And so the employees don't know that it's actually the owner of the company that's pretending like they're a new employee and asking, can you help me? I'm, I'm new to this. It's my first day. I'm nervous. Uh, so if it's a guy, they usually put a beard and a hat and, you know, toupee if he's bald or whatever. They make him out so that nobody recognizes him. And, and usually these owners kind of live in ivory tower, so nobody really knows what the guy looks like anyway, but they don't recognize him. And then uh, he gets around the factory floor, or the office, wherever that is, uh, incognito in disguise and starts to get to know different employees and ask them about the company and ask them for help and, and, and gets to know them on the personal life and uh, all, all different levels. And at the end, they have the reveal where the boss takes off his hat, the beard, look at who it is, it's me, and uh, drops his name. <laughs> and, and, and they go, oh, you're the owner, I, I had no idea. And that was the whole point of it, that they have no idea. And when we walk through life, 
we often have no idea that God equates seeing him with the way we see people. In fact, it says in John uh, 1.10, it says that he came into the world, but the world didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him because he's undercover boss. He doesn't want to be recognized that way. How many times in scriptures do they walk with Jesus and they don't even know it's Jesus? At the, at the garden, uh, he's raised, he comes out of the tomb and uh, the women go there. They've got spices prepared and they see what they think is the gardener, but it's actually Jesus. It's undercover boss. And he's there, you know, doing a bit of gardening. Hello, ladies. Can I help you? Yes, we're looking for Jesus. We want to anoint his body, and the stone's moved away, and there's no body in there. And so, oh, that's, that's really something, isn't it? And then the longer he talks, they discover something that it's actually him. They didn't recognize him. A couple disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're walking, and they're discussing all of these things that happened, uh, that his body was gone, and, and uh, the crucifixion, and, and all of that. And, and, and here's, this, here's this guy talking to these two disciples. And it's Jesus, but they don't even know it's him. How does that happen? It happens when Jesus is walking on water and, and Peter's, and they see him in a storm. Now, I can understand that because there's wind and waves and a storm going on, but they think it's a ghost until he starts to get closer and, and Pete, Peter goes, if that's you, if that's you, Jesus, I, I don't know if it's you or not. I, I, visibly, I can't recognize you, but if it's you, bid me to come. Jesus says, well, come. Happens all the time where they don't recognize him from a physical appearance. Now, I happen to think that that's by design, not by default, that God actually set it up that way. A lot of people, I just want to see Jesus. I look at the painting, I see Jesus as a Caucasian dude with a beard. It's like, oh, is that what he looks like? I was in Japan. They've got a different version of Jesus. He looks Japanese. I kid you not. Uh, he's the most Japanese Jesus you'd ever meet. Go to Africa. They got a black Jesus, an African Jesus. Everybody's got their take on what they think Jesus looks like, but they miss the whole point. It's not about his physical appearance. There was nothing about him in Isaiah that says that they could even recognize him. He doesn't want to be recognized that way. Do you understand that? He is God. If he really wanted to be recognized that way, he would do it. But he doesn't want that. He wants you to see something. He wants you to see someone. And the someone that he wants you to see is him in all of us. Because he sees himself in every human being. The takeaway from that is when we see what God sees, we can't look at a person the same way and discount them and call them names and diminish them and demean them and attack them verbally or, or whatever. Something has to shift with inside of us, if we're really following him and, and, and we see what he sees, we start to see divinity in humanity. But most people are blind to the, to the divine. They're only looking at the natural. That's why he gives that parable. 
Here's something in the natural to show you what something spiritual is like. The wise virgins had oil. The unwise ran out. In, in Scripture, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit actually can reside in us, fill us up, and enlighten us, and overflow, and light up, illuminate our path, so that we see what God sees because of God in us, allowing us to see through His light, not through our darkness. When I look at people, I cannot just see someone that God doesn't care about. God cares about every human being on the face of the planet. He's intensely in love with every single person on the face of the planet. He sees something in every single person. When he called his 12 disciples, and he calls Matthew, who wrote this uh, letter that we're reading from, he doesn't just see tax collector, a guy that's ripping people off in the tax office, and everybody hates him. No, he sees something in Matthew that nobody else sees, and he says, come and follow me. Peter and John, he sees fishermen, but he sees more than fishermen. He sees men that have potential that are not fulfilling their potential, that are falling far short of what he has, the plan that God has for their lives. Every one of us has potential. Something that we could achieve, someone that we could be, but we fall far short, often because nobody else sees that and brings that out. At City Church, when we say we see what God sees, it means that we're acknowledging that every person that we, that we come in contact with, we have a place in their life to bring out their potential to see them go to higher ground, to elevate our relationships with people. The problem is that most of us want to elevate our relationships with people so that we can be elevated. We want to ride the elevator of success. We want to ride the elevator of fame. And, and, and fame and pride and, and, and these things, it's not that it's wrong for you to, uh, to, to be famous, for instance, or, or to, to be successful, but, but it can cloud your vision so you don't see what God sees anymore. And, and then we start to classify agendas and opportunities as divine opportunity, not divine. Uh, Somebody special worth meeting because they can further my career. They can, they can make me successful. Uh, but this person has nothing to give me. Therefore, I'll give them a wide berth. I don't care about them because they're not going to further my, my agenda. But they can further my, they can take me someplace. So we're quick to move over to this side where we've got something to gain out of that relationship because we're not seeing what God sees. I remember hearing this, the uh, sad but true story of Mahatma Gandhi, who uh, led India. Really, he's, he's attributed with being the father of the, of the nation of India because he uh, staged a very peaceful uh, protest to get them out of colonization because he saw the oppression that was going on. He uh, was a lawyer. He ended up in uh, Africa first and fought for a cause over there, not quite successfully because apartheid did take over, but uh, he, he moved back to India for his own people. 
and he was in Calcutta. It was a Sunday. And he thought, I'll go to church. So he goes to church Sunday morning, just like all of you came here. And he was greeted on the steps of the entrance of the church with these words, you can't come in. Reason? Because you're not white. Second reason, if you were uh, of ethnicity, Indian, dark, you could come in if you were in the upper, upper caste. But you're not in the upper caste. You're a lower caste. And you're not white. And you're not welcome. He was turned away from the house of God, from the place where the songs were sung, the values were privately perhaps espoused, but turned away. I can't help but to think, what if they'd have welcomed a lower caste Indian dark-skinned person into the church in Calcutta? Might not things have been different for him and for perhaps for India? But instead he remained a Hindu he said this, he said, Christianity I, I, I like, but it's the Christians that I don't like. Why would we have a value we see what God sees? Because we want to see what God sees, because God sees something, God sees someone, and God wants us to see someone that he loves and he died for in every single person that we come in contact with and stop categorizing appointments as that was a divine appointment. Why was it divine? Because it furthered my career. So it must have been divine. That other appointment where I met just an ordinary person that had nothing to give me, well, that was just, you know, yeah, it was a meaningless uh, appointment or whatever, whatever. There is no such thing. Every appointment is a divine appointment if your eyes are open to see what God sees regardless of whether you're going to get elevated in your finances or your career, they could do something for you. Should not that change our walk through life? When we see what God sees, that God sees someone, things should slow down a little bit. We should have a little more patience to talk to people, to listen, not to be heard to actually stop and smell the roses and, and see the beauty, beauty that God created in every single person and stop judging, prejudging, prejudiced. All of these things should drop off. We become a light in a very dark world. I love, and I'll close with this, but I love the uh, account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It's in uh, Acts chapter 9, I believe it is. And it says there was a disciple named Ananias. A disciple is somebody that's following their master, following Jesus. And God speaks to Ananias and he says, go to the house of Judas on a street called Straight Street. You'll find there a man named Saul. Now Saul was the persecutor of the church in his time. He would be classed as a terrorist in our day. He went after Christians. He was a terminator. 
Here he comes. You know, he's coming. He's coming. People, Christian people in the, in the first century were terrified of this man named Saul from Tarsus. But God speaks to Ananias. I want you to go there. The terrorist, you know, the ultimate terrorist, Saul, the one that strikes fear into the hearts of everybody. He's there at Judas's house on Straight Street. And I want you to go there because I've showed him that, that you are coming. You're going to lay hands on him. He's blind. He can't see. He was struck blind uh, when the light appeared. God appeared on the road to Damascus. He was, uh, uh, he was struck blind. Couldn't see. Something like scales were covering him. But through his imagination, through his mind's eye, God shows him, hey, help is on its way. Ananias is coming. He's going to show you something so that your eyes can be open, so you don't stumble around in darkness killing Christians anymore. I've got a plan for you, Saul. I've got a plan for you. Your name will become Paul. So Ananias, he says, this guy's fearful. Do you not know God, what he does to the church? Hello, I'm God. I think I've got it worked out. Don't be afraid. Just go. He goes there, lays hands on him, and he says something that I think is quite amazing in, in Acts chapter 9. He calls him brother. He says, Brother Saul, totally uh, full of forgiveness towards this man. He lays hands on him. Paul's eyes are open. He can see. Then he gets a revelation of Jesus that results in about two-thirds of the New Testament being written from letters from this man Saul who becomes Paul. I think that's pretty amazing. Now, what would have happened if Ananias would have gone, no, no, I don't see that at all. I see I'm going to die. If I go to Judas's house and, and, and meet this terrorist who's, who's going to be there, this is a setup. Uh, plus, I've got friends that were killed by this man, and my heart is full of unforgiveness, and I hope that he burns in hell, and I'm not going there. What would the result be? What's, what's the result that Gandhi get kicked out of church? We don't know. We'll never know what could have been. What's the result that Saul became Paul and started following Jesus? Well, the result is we've got some amazing letters that he wrote, revelations such as Christ in me, the hope of glory. We've got revelation after revelation because he, he who is blind could see that he saw what God sees, that Ananias saw what God sees. And at the end of the age, they still don't see it. So many, in Matthew 25, we'll close with this. At the end of that letter, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 37, I won't go into all of it, but Jesus is talking there. No longer a parable, I might add. Talking about the end. He says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, Get this next bit. When did we see you? Because they weren't looking at Jesus. <laughs> They're looking at people. When did we see you? Hungry. When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When, when did we see you? A stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you? Sick or in prison, go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, this is the eye opener, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. If you see them, you see him. Don't go looking, demanding him to physically appear to you so you can see what he looks like. He's not going to do that, chances are. But what he will do, he'll cause you to see what he sees. That's our value, to shape your environment wherever you go so that your eyes will be open, that you can see Jesus in every person that you meet, every encounter that you have, that your eyes will be open to see someone, not just things and agendas in your own course in life, that your eyes will be open, that you can have the sheer joy of watching people that God loves become every, everything that God created them for. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray, and we're out of time. Father, I just thank you this morning for each person here. As I said at the start, that we would focus and be intentional and be in the now. That we wouldn't just walk by people and just see them as trees or speed bumps even. But we would engage for their good, not for our benefit. That we would endeavor to see others elevated, not just ourselves, and driving our agendas. That we would have oil in our lamp. That your spirit could dwell in us to light our path. That we would see someone more than just something that each person that's watching online, that's here right now, that you would speak to each one of us, not through fear, not through regret, but through hope and love, that we could truly experience the joy that you have, that you so love the whole world, that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life with every head bowed and every eye closed if you want to I'm going to pray a prayer out loud if you want to you can give him your heart and start an incredible journey a conversation and have your eyes opened every day to not just see people pass by, shake your head and go, oh, that's terrible, but to actually have the power to do something about it, to help humanity, to see divinity in humanity. 
I'd like you to pray this prayer with me. If you'd like to ask Jesus Christ into your heart, say this after me. Say, Dear God, I thank you for sending your Son. Jesus, I give you my heart. Amen. Thank you for listening to the City Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this message or God worked through you in any way, then please take a moment to contact us through our website at city-church.net or email us your feedback at info at city-church.net.